This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. When I re-enter alone the city's crush and its chaos of noise and the fury of traffic surrounds me, may I, above that hammering confusion, remember sky and the mountain slopes where the herds are still descending homeward. May my courage be like those rocks and the shepherd's day-long work seem possible to me, the way he drifts and darkens and with a well-aimed stone hems in his flock where it unravels. With slow and steady strides, his posture is pensive, and as he stands there, noble. Even now, a god might secretly slip into this form and not be diminished. In turn, he lingers and moves on like the day itself, and cloud shadows pass through him as though all of space were thinking slow thoughts for him. I've been exploring the three essentials of Zen, great faith, great doubt, and now great determination. And so I've I've spoken about great faith and great doubt, and so I want to speak about great determination, which I think really holds the other two together on the path. And this poem is the third in Rilke's uh, Spanish trilogy. And I think it it works nicely as a kind of... um, Invocation for great determination. May I, in the midst of chaos, in the jumble and noise of my mind, or the jumble and noise of the world, remember sky and mountain slopes. May I, in the midst of hammering confusion that's clamoring for my voice, my opinion, my actions, remember space and silence and the ground under my feet. May my courage be steadfast like a rock that does not crumble. May this great work of waking up seem possible to me, and not just possible, but claimable as my right, my very nature. Which means that even in my darkest hour, in my grimmest moment, I am still sky and slope and light. May I never forget this. And if I do, may my noble friends on the path remind me May my steadfast vow remind me. I had been thinking in recent days of the Lorica of St. Patrick, a prayer I um, stumbled upon a few years ago, and this poem of Rilke has reminded me of uh, of it again. And a Lorica is a prayer of protection, a Christian prayer of protection. A Lorica means breastplate. And um, I was thinking you could say it's similar to our Dorani. The Shosaimyo Kichijo Dorani that we chant every morning is a Dorani to avert disasters. And it is thought that the very sounds themselves are what uh, creates the protection. So it's not the meaning, it's not the content of the chant per se, but the sounds. But of course, we can't discount the mind of the one who chants them. 
And a few years ago, I, I told a story of a, of a hermit who had gone off to live in a remote island in the middle of a, of a lake, a Tibetan uh, practitioner. And he was known for uh, his recitation of the mantra, Om Mani Padme Hum, and that, that was, he had made that his life of practice. He had spent 40 years reciting this mantra with every ounce of his being. And so there was a, a student, a young monk, who kind of had become the, the equivalent of what would be our chief disciple. And he, was, and he had become a, a somewhat of a scholar on mantras. And he really wanted to kind of try his chops with this hermit. And so he decided to seek him out. So he hired a boat and went off to this island to find the hermit. And when he found it, he found this very simple, humble old man. And he asked him, you know, what, what have you been doing? What, what is your practice? And the hermit said, well, I've been chanting. I've been chanting the Mani uh, mantra. And the, the monk said, well, can you tell me how you've been, how you've been reciting it? And the hermit said, uh, sure, it's Om Mani Pema Hum. And the monk was horrified. And he said, you've been reciting it wrong. All of these years you've been reciting it wrong. I am so sorry. I, I just, I'm afraid that you've wasted all this time. And the hermit was horrified, too. And he thought, well, tell me. He, he said, tell me, how should I recite it? And the monk said, well, it's Om Mani Padme Hum. And so the, the hermit repeated it a few times. And then they chatted a, you know, a little bit more. And the, the monk went away, feeling very self-satisfied, He's, he's on the boat, you know, heading, heading back, and he's thinking, you know, I'm so glad that I came. What if I hadn't? You know, this poor old hermit would have just died <laughs> reciting the, the wrong mantra. And as he's thinking these very self-satisfied thoughts, he suddenly notices that the boatman, his eyes are like saucers. So he turns around to look at what he's looking at, and he realizes the hermit is standing right next to the boat, standing on the surface of the water, and uh, he says to him, I've forgotten. I've forgotten the correct pronunciation, so can you tell me again? <laughs> and the monk says, I, you know, now he's horrified for himself. He says, I don't I really think that you need it. <laughs> and the hermit says, no, but I really, really want to learn it correctly. So he says it again, and the hermit, you know, repeats it to himself a few times, turns around, and slowly walks uh, on water back, <laughs> back to his hut. And so, you know, um, think of that when you're chanting, you know, the morning service. Never underestimate the power of a concentrated mind. God knows what you're invoking if you're not paying attention. Um, and so this, this particular uh, Lorica is a Gaelic prayer. And it's said that St. Patrick supposedly sang it um, as, as a protection. He was riding into Ireland uh, to bring Christianity to, to the people of Ireland. And the king, Logaire, did not want that. And so he sent a group of his men to ambush St. Patrick and his monks. And St. Patrick somehow got wind of this and began uh, singing this Lorica. And uh, one version of the story says that then the, the song produced a mist of concealment and hid St. Patrick and, and his monks from view. 
Another version says that the song actually cast a spell on the king's men and that really then what they saw was a herd of deer and a fawn among them. And so the, the Loricus also called the deer's cry. In other way, you know, St. Patrick was, was saved. And one, one short section at the beginning of it says, I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of lightning, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the rock, firmness, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock. And I was thinking how, you know, the early sutras speak of us human beings as composed of five elements of fire, water, air, air, earth, and space. And that this, this loric is really asking for the protection of these elements, through these elements, really, saying, let me be in these, be strong and clear and firm and fiery. Let me draw upon every good quality that I see in the world around me, because I will need it for the work ahead. And I was reflecting how many times during Sashin I've drawn from the energy of the mountain, the air, the trees, and the rocks outside these windows, from the rain and the sun that follows. And why wouldn't I be able to draw from their ki, their chi, when I am that world itself? Why wouldn't I be able to draw energy from you and you from me? And later, the lorica turns toward light, uses the image of light, and invokes its protection. Light with me, light before me, light behind me, light in me, light beneath me, light above me, to my right, to my left. And it's good to remember that you know, without um, light, there are no shadows. So those dark corners, those uh, nooks and crannies that Sean was, was speaking of yesterday... You know, all those aspects of our personality that we would rather not deal with. We would rather not acknowledge, not look at. That the root, their source, is still light. Which means we can't just cut them out. Murakami has a, a story in which a man is really, he's kind of trapped in his, in his own mind. But the way that he's trapped is his shadow has been cut from him, and his shadow is in this dank cellar. And so the only way that he can be free, that he can escape his own imprisonment, is, is being reunited with his shadow. He has to bring it with him. And I was thinking how, you know, light itself, so a flame, for example, does not cast a shadow. Right? So shadow is produced only by the blocking of light. So when you turn light into these dark corners. The shadow disappears. <clears throat> May my courage be like those rocks and the shepherd's day-long work seem possible to me. And what makes our work possible? Why is it that sometimes we, we look at the path ahead and it looks inhumanly steep. It looks impassable. And at other times we think, I can do this. I will do this. 
what is the difference? When we think, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. How do we know? How do we know that's true? Because we often think it with such conviction. And what is the this that we can do when it comes to practice, for example? Sitting still, being with our breath, letting go of a thought. Yet here we all are doing exactly that. Even for a moment, moment by moment, we let go of that thought. We be with that breath. And sometimes it's smooth and sometimes it isn't, but we're doing it. I can't do this. It's just another thought. It doesn't have any more weight, any more strength, certainly any more solidity than any other thought. And most of the time it's not even true. And maybe we think, you know, great determination and we imagine heroic. You envision sitting through kinhin or sitting long hours, you know, into the night. We think of dropping away of body and mind, you know, a a mind really shining with a radiant light. And I really don't think great determination looks like anything just as practicing the breath or a koan or awareness doesn't look like anything. This is simply our idea of practice. And once we dispense with it, then we can just get down to the business of actually practicing. Maybe great determination is great because it turns toward rather than away from. Because in a moment... It is complete in itself. It is all-encompassing in that moment of letting go, in that moment of dropping, even for an instant. That's the greatness. That's the vastness. Maybe it is great because it is steady and confident. Even in the midst of confusion, there is some sense in us that thinks, I know what to do. Maybe I can't quite do it yet, but I know what to do. So it knows what it is capable of. It knows without even knowing, a lot of the time, how we know that the path is not only walkable, but that we will do it, that we are doing it. And I think that's the moment that is that shift from longing faith that I spoke of when I, when I gave the talk on great faith, longing faith to confident faith. So longing faith is, is exactly what it says. You see, usually you see in someone else, perhaps a teacher, those qualities of a person of the way, and you think, I want that. I want to see what they have seen. And so it's a longing faith because there is some sense, some trust that, that if they have attained this, maybe you can too. But there's a point at which it shifts into confident faith. And that's really the point where it cannot, it's not shaken anymore. You know what you are capable of. You know that these qualities are your very nature. And this is a very modest you know, example of faith. But I was remembering um, many years ago... Um, we were doing a, a family retreat with the kids, and we were camping just across the road. And it had been raining like it did 
at the beginning of this, this week. So everything was completely drenched. And I had decided that I was going to uh, light a, a fire in the, the fire pit so that when people, the family, started coming in, we would have a nice fire going. And so, you know, everything, all, everything was, was drenched. And so I was having a lot of trouble. But I knew enough, you know, I kept thinking, yeah, but every time I fail, the wood is just a little bit drier. So let me just keep trying. And I was doing that for a while, and I was doing it by myself. And I was getting increasingly more and more frustrated and thinking, you know, maybe I just can't. Maybe I'm going to have to wait until tomorrow. And for some reason, at some point, something happened. I remember very clearly feeling it in my body, actually. I looked at the fire, and I knew I was going to get it. I don't know how I knew, but something shifted, and I knew, just stay with it. You're going to do this. And I did. Eventually, I got it, I got it started. And I think of so many times in my practice where I have felt that, I've, especially after long periods where it seems like protracted frustration, that you can just stay with it, stay with it, stay with it. Something shifts, finally. And usually the shift is actually very, very small, not dramatic at all. And you're no longer yearning for what will be. You trust the Dharma in a new way. You trust your practice and your ability to practice in a new way. And when you need to, you, know, you get help. That's what liturgy is about. That's what face-to-face teaching, study, sangha. That is why we do this together. Because in those moments of great doubt, we can be certain, we're sitting here in the zendo, that at least two, three, maybe more people are, are feeling some version of what we're feeling in that moment. And Tom Brown spoke of how, and I couldn't find the reference, but I remember reading it um, a few years ago, how certain uh, Native American tribes would actually travel with a, a live ember. And I don't remember what it was that they wrapped it with. They, they had some way of carrying it, and they would take it wherever they went. They protected that, that source of, of life, of warmth, of light. And I think of, of Zazen and certainly of, of Samadhi, that single-pointedness of mind as that, as that careful protection of my mind, of, of, of that live ember. And there's that, that koan between Baijiang and um, Guishan. He's, Guishan is, is sitting in a, in a darkened room. He's just been sitting for a while. And Baijiang comes in and says, you know, who is that? And Guishan says, it's me, it's Guishan. He says, why don't you light the fire? You know, he, he gives him a, a poker. He's right next to the fireplace. So Guishan gets up and grabs the poker and kind of stirs the ashes. And he comes back and he says, no, there's no fire. Baijiang gets in there, stirs the ashes, and he finds a live coal. He takes a pair of tongs, and he holds it up, and he says, what's this? And and Guishan becomes enlightened at seeing it. And I've always thought, you know, so the koan, of course, doesn't say, was Guishan just doing it half-heartedly? It's like, oh, you know, I'm not really looking. Like when you send a teenager to look for your glasses, and they're like, oh, I couldn't find them. (laughs) And then you go, and they're right there. If that's the case, he wouldn't have become enlightened you know, by, by seeing it. And so what happened? He wasn't ready. What happened that he couldn't see it? And then his teacher goes, he looks a little bit further. Here it is. What's this? 
he wasn't ready, he wasn't ready, he wasn't ready, and then he was ready. And what happened, you know, leading all the way up to that point, that in that moment he was ready. What is that moment of turning? And what leads to it if not great faith, great doubt, and great determination? There is a sutra in the Pali Canon. It's called the Datu Bivanga Sutta, in, in which the Buddha is traveling through the countryside, and he stops at, at somebody's home, and he asks uh, the man if he can... He sees there's a shed out in the yard, and he asks him if he can just spend the night there. And the owner says, you're, you're more than welcome, except there's already a wanderer there, so ask him if he would share it with you. And so, so they, they meet, but the Buddha doesn't say who he is. And as it turns out, this wanderer had, had heard about the Buddha and had heard about his teachings. It must have been a time when, when the Buddha was really coming into prominence and people were, were talking, were talking about his, his unique teachings. And just by hearing about him and by hearing um, about his teachings, great faith arose in him, and he decided to leave home. Without having met the Buddha, he decided to leave home and seek him out so he could become ordained. And so unbeknownst to him, the Buddha comes to him. And uh, they talk a little bit, and then the Buddha notices that this wanderer just spends the whole night in meditation. And so he's impressed, and he decides he's going to find out a little bit more about him. And so he asks him the next morning, Out of dedication to whom have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? Of whose dharma do you approve? And Pukusati, who was the wanderer, says, Out of dedication to the Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, I have left home. He is my teacher. It is his dharma that I approve. And the Buddha decides to teach him um, anonymously. He doesn't say who he is. And I, and I think how, what a wonderful moment that is for Pukusati. Because not knowing that it's the Buddha in front of him, he doesn't get nervous, he's not intimidated, he doesn't feel he has to impress him. He can just listen to this other wanderer who's going to speak the Dharma. And it made me think of the number of times I have sat at at a dining room table during the introductory retreat, for example, when a... um, a retreat participant, you know, unknowingly sits, sits next to Shugen Roshi. And they ask him, oh, you know, have you been here long? <laughs> and Shugen Roshi very innocently smiles. He's like, a little while. And then they have a conversation. And then the person comes up, you know, to do the introduction. They come up to the zendo and they see, oh, oh, I was sitting next to the abbot. And I think of that, that moment, you know, for, for half an hour, they could just be themselves. They could just meet themselves and meet, meet this other person. Perhaps hear something differently. And eventually, Pukusati does figure out it's the Buddha. You know, he, he's taught him quite a bit. And so um, he asks if he can become ordained. And the Buddha says to him, well, are your robes ready? Is your bowl ready? It's a little bit of a strange way to ask the question. I mean, ready in, in what way? She was, she was really asking, do you have robes? Do you have your bowl? And Pukusati says, no, but I'll, I'll go find them so that I can become ordained. And so he goes off. He goes searching for 
robe and bowl, and a runaway cow tramples him, and he dies. I mean, it's such a sad story. Uh, he'd been waiting this whole time for the Buddha, and then there he is, and he dies. But before, before he dies, the Buddha teaches him that a person of the way has four skilled determinations. Teaches him, among a number of other things, has four skilled determinations. And he says the first is to be diligent about discernment or right view. The second is to guard truthfulness. The third is to be devoted to renunciation. And the fourth, to train in equanimity. And right view, of course, is the the understanding of the Four Noble Truths, suffering and its cessation. But when he's referring to discernment, it really is uh, knowing about the five elements that constitute a person. And he goes through this long um, analysis of these elements and how they function really in a person. And together with consciousness and the six senses make up what we perceive as reality. And he says to him, just like when you rub two sticks together, you can make fire. When one of your senses makes contact with something pleasurable, the feeling of pleasure arises. But when you separate the sticks, the fire is stilled. Pleasure is stilled, and all that remains is equanimity, a mind that is bright, luminous, and pliant, like gold that is heated so it becomes soft and malleable, and you can make anything you want out of it. And so if you see, I mean, these, these four determinations, they're really very closely tied together. So when we see rightly that I'm made of fire and water and earth and air, sky and clouds and trees and mountain slopes, when I see that I'm made, I perceive through the senses and consciousness, that then what arises are three kinds of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, that when I come into contact with something, one of these feelings arises, at least one of these feelings. That that is how the whole experience, my perception, is put together. And when I stop the contact, the feeling dies down, just as the fire would, if you stop rubbing those two sticks together. And so the question, of course, then becomes, what kind of fire do I want to create and maintain? What kind of fire will I carry with me Will I stoke and fan, and which will I let die out? And this may seem like a little bit of a, of a mechanistic explanation, or like that's it's just too simple, it's not quite like that. Isn't it, though? I mean, when you really get down to the very basic elements of it, a thought arises, I make contact with it, I have a reaction to it, I move toward it, or I move away from it, some are neutral, What happens next? Do I choose to stoke that fire? Do I continue? Or do I let it die out? And answering this question, of course, requires discernment and requires truthfulness. I need to be honest about what what it is that I'm really practicing in that moment. What do I want to practice in that moment? It requires renunciation of that which will not lead to equanimity if what I want is to see clearly. Renunciation of what will not lead to clarity, to stillness of body and mind.
But then I wanted to add to these uh, four determinations the, the seven qualities that the sutras say are what helps a person cultivate loving kindness. And I wanted to do that because I so often hear about the many, many ways in which we're not kind and loving to ourselves, let alone others. And also, you know, just to to stress the fact that great determination isn't cold or calculating. It's not just driven. That there's an element of it that needs to be extremely gentle. I've told before how you know I went through a period in in my my marriage where my wife would you know we'd be having a conversation about something, sometimes perhaps an, an argument, and at a certain point she would just stop and kind of shake her head and she would say you know you really remind me of Mr. Spock, <laughs> and I thought she was complimenting me, <laughs> which just goes to show <laughs> she wasn't, <laughs> she was not complimenting me. And eventually, I figured out there were other qualities of my being that I needed to, to cultivate <laughs> besides my rational, rational being. And, you know, maybe that's the nice thing about a phrase like uh, emotional intelligence. If you ever are, you know, afraid that you're getting too soft, God forbid, uh, just think of developing your emotional <laughs> IQ. Um, and these, these uh, seven qualities... I was thinking about them as really that, um, that softening into being, into your own being, which then lets you soften you know, towards another, remain open towards another. So the first one is to know all sentient beings uh, to have been your mother. The second is to reflect under kindness, then to repay that kindness, having a gentle approach towards self and others, having a compassionate, sympathetic attitude, going beyond your own limitations, and having an ever-present, constant, pure attitude. And, you know, Kandra Rinpoche speaks of these quite, um, in, in quite a bit of detail. And she says this, this first one, you know, is it difficult to believe that all beings at one point have been your mother? You know, even beings that you don't like, the ones you don't think about, So you look at a caterpillar or a slug and you think, were you my mother? (laughs) But if you think, you know, even from a scientific perspective, if we know now that we're at least 99% of of our DNA that we share, that we're 50th cousins to one another, if you really go far back enough, is is it really such a stretch that at some point every being was your mother? And, and, you know, many of the Tibetan teachers acknowledge that this is a difficult um, practice for many of us in the West because we don't always have a good relationship with our mothers. And this is coming, though, from really from that understanding of, of respect, of, of gratitude, of that acknowledgement of what is life-giving. And so, so the intent, really, of this quality is to cultivate love and respect and gratitude. And so understanding that, understanding our interdependence, understanding our interbeing, we then, we then reflect on the many kindnesses we have received, 
you know, the food you ate today, the room that somebody prepared for you, the clothes you're wearing. We reflect on everything that we have received and, and vow to repay it in kind. Thank you, by the way, for the, for the chicken soup and all the many, many uh, cups of tea that I've gotten this week and the well wishes. Um, you know, if you're going to get sick, I mean, session is really the best, <laughs> the best time to do it. I said that some time ago, and one of the residents translated that as, Suisse likes to get sick during session. <laughs> I don't. But if you're going to get sick, uh, you know, to do it during session, because, you know, your body, you're practicing being still and uh, silent. And so, at least for me, I can really watch my body let my body do what it knows so well how to do. But it certainly helps to have all the help. And so, so you, you vow, you vow to, to repay these, these kindnesses in small and large ways. And you also, you determine to be gentle and compassionate. You know, so there's, there's, no, there's nothing abrupt or abrasive we determine to be non-judgmental. And at the same time, that we don't assume how far we can go. How do we know how far we can go until we test it? And Sashin really is such a, a beautiful, very nicely controlled environment to really test that. You, know, you think you need eight hours of sleep? Let's see. You think you need to, to eat whenever you want? See if that's true. Have constant access to your phone? have ways to numb out, you know, when things are getting hard. Is that really true? And Roshi has told this story before. Of, I believe it was a, a member of one of our prison sanghas who was then released and came to do Sushin. And for whatever reason, he decided he was just going to, he was going to test the precautions. He was just going to break all of them to see what would happen. And so somehow he got access to a TV. He watched TV. He stayed up. He ate, you know, whenever he just knocked into the kitchen, ate stuff. Maybe he made phone calls. I don't know. He broke every precaution, looked around. At the end of the week, you know, what do you think happened? Nothing. He was exhausted. That was pretty much his session. And so he saw, you know, very, very uh, clearly, you know, firsthand, oh, that's why there's this container. It's not just to limit me. It's to contain me. And the last of these qualities is to have an ever-present, constant, pure attitude. And I really, I think of this as um, just a sense of honesty. I, I'm honest with myself about what I'm saying and doing. And as I said, you know, going back to the determination to be truthful. Now, there's no, there's no hidden agendas. There's no self-serving purposes. Or if there are, we acknowledge that. Oh, there's still self arising. Here it is. And if I could you know, humbly add one more, more quality, I would say that it's to cultivate courage, to look at those um, dark corners St. Teresa of Avila said, It is of great importance when we begin to practice contemplation not to let ourselves be frightened by our own thoughts. Not not let ourselves be frightened that that we will be taken over by them. 
that we are at their mercy, that we can't control ourselves. I mean, that may be a very real um, sense that we're having. But she's really saying it's important in the practice of contemplation to be willing to look at these face-on, because how else will we deal with them? We can't do it when they're behind us or underneath, under some rug. So we have to have courage, as this poem says. May my courage be like those rocks and the shepherd's day-long work seem possible to me. The way he drifts and darkens and with a well-aimed stone hems in his flock where it unravels. A well-aimed stone is my intent for this period of zazen, for this ashin, for my life. In a, in a moment of distraction, that well-aimed stone is, no, not that thought, this one. No, not that fantasy, my breath. And so as my mind is, just as I begin to see that as it begins to unravel, I bring it, I bring it back to itself, back to the flock, gently but firmly. And in Sashin, we do this as many times as necessary because our determination is great and it is steady. With slow and steady strides, his posture is pensive. And as he stands there, noble. Even now, a god might secretly slip into this form and not be diminished. This posture of the seated Buddha is also noble. A god could slip into it secretly and not be diminished in the least. But it doesn't have to. Because a god, a goddess, has already claimed it as their own. And it is not possible to be diminished within it. In turn, he lingers and moves on like the day itself. And cloud shadows pass through him as though all of space were thinking slow thoughts for him. I very much like that image, as though all of space were thinking slow thoughts for him. So let me leave you with a question, hopefully an appropriate question for the winding down of Sashin. What kinds of thoughts would you think if you let all of space think slowly for you? What kind of thoughts does space think? For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.